I believe the next three paragraphs in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, 731 to 37, and then chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, I think they all belong together in a single unit. Uh, This would be another example of an unfortunate chapter division occurring in the biblical text and obscuring the author's purpose. We've seen this before and we'll see it again. Together, these three paragraphs describe Jesus' one and only mission into Gentile territory. And this is noteworthy because in the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, Jesus flatly tells the Canaanite woman, when she pleads with him for help, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. Well, why then did Jesus take this long, circuitous, 120-mile foray deep into Gentile territory, traveling from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, northwest to Tyre and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon, then all their way around to the Decapolis on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, passing through much of modern-day Syria. Well, we'll seek an answer to that question next week when we look at all three of those passages together and we discover the purpose of Jesus' Gentile mission. This week, I want to sharply narrow our focus and zero in on the account of Jesus' interaction with this Canaanite Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman from the city of Tyre who came to him in desperate need. We pick up at verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, wait a second. Did Jesus just refer to this woman as a dog? Yes. Yes, he did. Surely that fact alone merits its own sermon. What is going on here? Why would Jesus be so rude and so insensitive to this woman's plight? We, surely, I hope, would never dream of treating a desperate woman in this way. These are strange words from a strange Savior. So before we try and make sense of Jesus' response, though, I think we need to understand something of the context in which it occurs. Mark begins this narrative with the words, from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, From there reaches back to the location of last week's debate between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes over the issue of defilement in the first half of Mark chapter 7, which likely took place 
in the region known as Gennesaret on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. From Gennesaret, therefore, Jesus and his disciples traveled to the region of Tyre and Sidon, okay, northwest from Capernaum along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the region that had formerly been known as Phoenicia. The people of Tyre and Sidon had a long and bitter history with Israel, and they were well known for their pagan practices. It was from Tyre, in fact, that Jezebel, uh, the queen of evil, so to speak, came in the days of Elijah. So when Jesus went to Tyre, he was entering into the epicenter of Palestinian paganism. Why he went there and why he desired to remain anonymous, we will tackle next week. When he arrived, Jesus entered into a house, but he was soon interrupted by a woman whose daughter was possessed by a demon. How she had heard of Jesus is unclear, although Mark tells us in Mark 3.8 that citizens from Tyre had come down and had witnessed his miracles and his teachings. Maybe they had brought back word of this prophet, this miracle worker, back to Tyre, and she had heard of it. But it is obvious that she viewed him as her last and only hope for the healing of her daughter. And so she falls at his feet, and she begs him to cast out the demon from her little girl. Now, for the first century Jew, this woman was as unclean as one could possibly get. She was a woman, she was a Gentile woman, and she was a Syrophoenician woman. She lived in the very center of a pagan land. It could be, and I don't think it's too much to read into the text to suggest that her daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit as a result of her connection to pagan spiritism. Well, this brings us to Jesus' response. Verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Matthew's version provides us with a little more detail, and I want to read it to you. It comes from Matthew 15, verses 22 to 26. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region, the region of Tyre and Sidon, came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. First, he does not answer her a word. Ignores her. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Number two, he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Number three, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Three times he rebuffs her in quite possibly the most rude way we could have devised. What is behind this strange and unexpected response from Jesus? Well, we can perhaps understand something of the disciples' response. It's clear that as of this point, they have not entirely grasped who Jesus is, or the worldwide implications of his messianic ministry. Mark has already told us, chapter 6 and verse 52, that their hearts are hard, and chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, that they do not understand 
true defilement and true cleansing. They're still largely in the dark, and so their response is perhaps understandable. Of course, they would urge Jesus to send this unclean, intrusive pagan woman away. But why does Jesus treat her in this way, first giving her the silent treatment and then adding insult to injury by not only refusing her request, but by calling her a dog in the process? I believe there are two answers to that question. The first has to do with the focus of Jesus' mission. We're going to take Jesus' words at face value here, and we're going to deal for just a moment with, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then we're going to dig deeper. And the second answer to that question has to do with the nature of true faith. Now first, as far as the mission of Jesus goes, the reason for his refusal to grant her request is seen when we look at the two statements of Jesus as they're given to us in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 15, 24. Number one, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Number two, verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay? Those two parallel statements basically saying the same thing. I didn't come here to minister to Gentiles. That's basically what he's saying. In those two statements, Jesus is expressing the focus of his earthly ministry, his ministry during his three years between his baptism and his crucifixion. And during those three years, the privilege and the priority of Israel were demonstrated in his preaching of the gospel of kingdom of the kingdom and in his ministry of healing and exorcism. It was because of Israel's privileged position as the chosen covenant people of God that it was fitting that the gospel of the kingdom should be preached to them first. That is why the Messiah, though he is the savior of the whole world, was not born in Rome, the capital of the world, or Ephesus, the capital of Asia Minor, or even in Tyre the capital of Phoenicia. He wasn't born in Gentile territory. He was born in Israel. Why? Because Israel was the chosen covenant people of God. And he was sent first to the children, the Israelites. It was their privilege to be the recipients of the Messiah's ministry and to hear the gospel of the kingdom first. Therefore, on the face of it, it is true that it would have been inappropriate to take the bread for the children, the Jews, before they were fed and throw it to the dogs, the Gentiles. Furthermore, Jesus had instructed his disciples to do the same thing when he sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 10, when he sends out the 12, he gives them these instructions. He says, go Nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel, not the nations. After his death and his resurrection, the great commission which Jesus gave to his church to take the gospel to all the nations further established the priority and privilege of Israel. Because he says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Where first? Jerusalem. Then all Judea, 
all Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what the disciples did. They started in Israel, and then they went to the nations. The Apostle Paul, the so-called apostle to the Gentiles, followed the same pattern in his ministry. He said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And that's the way he patterned his apostolic mission. He would go first into the Jewish synagogue in a city, and only when he was rejected there would he go to the Gentile marketplaces. So the reason for Jesus' refusal of the woman's request has to do with Israel's priority in the redemptive plan of God and in the mission of the Messiah. That's not so hard for us to understand. The gospel, according to Romans 1.16, is for the Jew first and then also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the nations, to us. But that doesn't explain his rudeness. No matter how hard some commentators may try to get Jesus off the hook by pointing out that Jesus uses the diminutive form of the Greek word for dog, kunarion, instead of the normal word, kuon, implying that Jesus is referring to her. He's not referring to her as a mangy street scavenger. He's talking about a household pet that doesn't get Jesus off the hook because he still compares the dog to the child. Listen. It would just be a good idea if we all stopped trying to get Jesus off the hook for things that he put himself on the hook for. Maybe he knows what he's doing. Jesus does not need us to defend him. He is being intentionally harsh. He is being intentionally rude. And he is doing so for a good and gracious reason. I think that Jesus is drawing forth from this woman an example of true faith. By throwing this obstacle in her way, not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus is forcing her faith to show its true qualities. It is a faith which is desperately, tenaciously, perseveringly clinging to Christ As her only hope. It is a faith that will not take no for an answer. It is a faith that will not let Jesus go until he blesses her. That is Jesus' purpose. And I think it is evidenced by his immediate response. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 15, 28, it says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. You know what we have here? This unclean Gentile woman from pagan Tyre has more faith than any of his disciples had who had been complaining of her intrusion. Do you remember Mark's assessment of their hearts in the aftermath of Jesus' walking on the water? Just let your eyes scan up the page a little bit to Mark 6, 51 to 52. Mark explains why they were so terrified when they saw Jesus walking upon the water. He says, they were utterly astounded. Why? 
because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, up to this point, the disciples had not manifested great faith. Jesus had never looked at his disciples and said, Oh men, great is your faith. They hardly even understood who Jesus was. And so I think Jesus determined to provide them and us with a picture of true faith, great faith. And in order to do it, he had to travel to Tyre. Jesus, in other words, is not being rude without reason. Rather, he throws an obstacle in the way of her faith that allows her great faith to shine forth with all of its brilliance. Now, at this point, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark or through any of my expositions, you may be wondering, do we really need another sermon on the characteristics of true faith? You seem to preach on this topic an awful lot. Well, that's true, and there's a reason for that. First of all, the nature of true faith is a frequent theme in my preaching because it's a frequent theme in the Scriptures. And secondly, faith is the instrument that receives all of the benefits and blessings of Christ. Therefore, if you want to receive all of the benefits and blessings of Christ, and I want that for you so desperately, you need to know what true faith is because the Scriptures also make clear that true faith has its many counterfeits. And we as a church, you as individuals, we need to be able to discern the genuine from the false. In the foreword to Tom Schreiner's recent book on justification by faith, John Piper wrote this. Knowing from James 2.26 that there is such a thing as dead faith, and from James 2.19 that there is such a thing as demonic faith, and from 1 Corinthians 15.2 that it is possible to believe in vain, And from Luke 8.13, that one can believe for a while, yet in a time of testing, fall away. And knowing that it is through faith that we are born again, 1 John 5.1, and and have eternal life, John 3.16 and 36. Therefore, surely we must conclude that the nature of faith and its relationship to salvation is of infinite importance. Piper goes on to say, I use the word infinite carefully. I mean that if we don't have such faith, the consequences have infinite significance. Eternal life is an infinite thing, and thus the loss of it is an infinite thing. Therefore, any human concern that has only to do with this world, no matter how global, no matter how painful, no matter how enduring, if it has only to do with this world, compares to the importance of saving faith as a thimble to the ocean, end quote. So the questions of what is true faith and whether or not I have it, the questions of what is true faith and whether or not you have it, are questions of infinite relevance. And that's why faith is so often the subject of my sermons. 
And that's why this passage is so precious and so important because it demonstrates an aspect of true, living, saving faith that is not frequently mentioned nor taught. And here it is. True faith wrestles with God. Desperately, tenaciously, and perseveringly until it receives the blessing which it needs. That's what this passage is designed to teach us. The imagery of wrestling with God comes from a story in Genesis 32, which I view as the necessary background to understanding what exactly Jesus is doing with this Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. So I'm going to have you turn with me back to Genesis 32. I want your eyes on the page. It is the night before the fateful meeting between Jacob and his twin brother Esau, from whom Jacob had stolen Isaac's blessings years earlier. Now Jacob is returning back to Canaan, the land of his birth, after a long sojourn with his relatives in the land of Haran, and he has heard that Esau is coming out of Canaan in order to meet him with a force of 400 men, Genesis 32, 6. What follows in this chapter is a struggle of faith for Jacob. Jacob is absolutely terrified, and his first inclination is to scheme to try to manipulate the circumstances to turn out for his good. That's what he's been good at. That's what he's done his whole life when faced with trouble. He's schemed. So he divides his camp into two because he hopes thereby to cut his losses if Esau attacked. He's diversifying his portfolio. His second thought is to pray but only after he schemed. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see what's happening? Jacob's faith is wrestling with God in prayer concerning God's promise to do him good and to bless him. And that promise which God spoke to him at Bethel seems to be in great danger because Esau appears to be coming out to attack him. And Esau is all hot under the collar because Jacob stole his birthright from him. Well, after praying and after wrestling with God in prayer, once again we see that Jacob's faith falters and once more he falls back into scheming. He concocts a plan to appease Esau's wrath by buying him off with a lavish gift. Genesis 32:20. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps then he will accept me. 
Okay, this, this back and forth is indicative of Jacob's whole life up to this point. His faith is always weak, faltering, divided, at one time trusting in God's promise, at another time trusting in his own devices. But that very night, something happens that's going to change Jacob forever. That night, Jacob wrestled with God, not in prayer, but in the flesh. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This is strange. This mysterious encounter leaves us with many questions, like, who is this man with whom Jacob wrestled? Where did he come from? Clearly from the text, he's more than a man. I mean, when, when it's all over, Jacob himself is convinced that he's seen God face to face and yet has survived. But if this man were really a manifestation of God, why did it take him all night long to overcome Jacob? Is he just not that good of a wrestler? Well, again, clearly this man possessed the power to end the battle anytime he pleased because when he wanted to, he had only to touch the socket of Jacob's hip and the joint was immediately wrenched out of socket. So that raises the question, why then did he allow this wrestling match to endure all through the night? The only explanation I can offer is that there must have been some purpose in the wrestling. If this God-man had the power to overcome Jacob all along, yet allowed Jacob to struggle against him all night, it must have been for some purpose. It must have been to Jacob's benefit to struggle, to endure, to push through the strife. See, I think the secret to understanding this enigmatic passage is found in verses 26 to 28. When the man told Jacob to let him go, for the dawn was breaking, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man did. Demanding Jacob's name, the man then changed it. No longer was he Jacob, which in the Hebrew literally means he who grasps the heel. It, it became uh, enigmatic for a supplanter or a usurper. No longer would Jacob be known as a schemer, as a cheat. Now he was Israel, which means he who strives with God. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
And from that point on, as the rest of Genesis bears out, Jacob was a different man. He was a new man. What changed? Whatever it was, it changed, watch this, in the act of wrestling with God. I suspect that at the demonstration of this mysterious man's power, when he dislocated Jacob's hip, the realization dawned on Jacob that the one with whom he had been striving was more than a mere man. It was God. And I think it was at that point that Jacob understood that this God-man had appeared that very night in answer to his earlier prayer for help and deliverance. So now, at this second great crossroads in Jacob's life, the first at Bethel, the second at Peniel, God has appeared to him a second time. And this time, Jacob is not about to let him go. Jacob knew now that if he's going to survive the next day's encounter with Esau and his army of 400 men, if the promise was going to come to pass, it would come through this God-man who had wrestled with him. And so he clung to the Lord with all of his might, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And that, I believe, was God's intention all along. He wrestled with Jacob, or perhaps better, he allowed Jacob to wrestle with him in order to lead Jacob to realize that his hope was not in his own ingenuity, not in his own schemes, not in his own plans. His only hope was in the God of the covenant. God wrestled with Jacob in order to draw forth from him a desperate, tenacious, persevering faith, the kind of faith that saves and receives the everlasting inheritance. I think that is exactly what Jesus is doing with the Syrophoenician woman. What we are witnessing in Mark chapter 7 is a wrestling match. And the result is the same. The woman recognized in Jesus the only hope of deliverance for her daughter. And she clung to him, and she would not let him go until he blessed her. And what is Jesus' response? Is he annoyed? Is he irritated? Is he put out? He's delighted. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you according to what you have asked. That is what great faith does. It clings to Jesus as the only hope, and it will not let him go until he gives you the blessings of his grace. This is great faith. This is the kind of faith that saves, and this is the kind of faith that Jesus is determined to call forth from you. And sometimes in his wonderful, mysterious way, he makes you wrestle with him in order to do it. And some of you, I am sure, and others of you, I know, are in the middle of a wrestling match with God. You strive with God, you struggle in prayer, you cry out all the day long, but heaven seems silent, indifferent to your cries. And yet you continue, you continue to pray, you continue to plead, you continue to cry out. Why? Because where else can you turn? 
Who else can save? Who else can deliver? Who else can grant you peace? Who else can rescue? This passage exists in the pages of Holy Scripture as an encouragement for those who are in the throes of a wrestling match with God. See, what you may interpret as silence or rejection or worse, indifference, is really Jesus sovereignly, graciously, lovingly calling forth from you, drawing forth from you a desperate, tenacious, persevering faith that will redound to his glory throughout endless ages. Is that not the testimony of all of Scripture? Did Jesus himself not say, Matthew eleven twelve. 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Doesn't that mean that Jesus wants us to storm the gates of heaven and bang on the door and cry out for entrance until the gates open? Did Jesus himself not say, Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door? For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive, agonitseste, agonize to enter through the narrow door and enter into the kingdom. Why? Because a lot of people are going to seek to enter and they won't be able. Why are they not able? Because they gave up. They quit when the door would not immediately yield and they turned around and they went and they sought for another door because in the final analysis, they did not really believe that the narrow door was the only door. If they had believed it, they would have banged on the door until their knuckles bled and it opened. Why else would Jesus make such radical and rarely quoted statements unless he is determined to call forth from his elect people a desperate, tenacious, persevering faith that simply won't take no for an answer and will not let go until he blesses them? Is he not glorified and honored by that kind of faith which reveals him to be the only hope of rescue? Is this not the testimony of countless saints throughout the history of the church who have wrestled with God and prevailed? Think of Luther. Did not Martin Luther wrestle with God for years? Did he not strive to enter the kingdom of heaven, trying and trying and trying to receive the forgiveness of sins? You say, yes, but he, but he was striving in the wrong way. He was trying to enter the kingdom through the way of works. Well, indeed, but even after he stumbled upon the scriptures, Psalms, Galatians, Romans, he couldn't make sense of them. He couldn't make sense of the gospel that he found there. He knew that the scriptures were trying to tell him good news, but he could not, he could not correlate the connection between his sins, God's righteousness, and the cross of Christ. I mean, how, how did these things intersect, and how was it good news? How was the righteousness of God good news for unrighteous people? And so what did he do? He gave up. 
I can't understand this. This is a bunch of nonsense. That's not what he did. Listen, listen to his own testimony, and I want you to listen for the language of striving. I want you to listen for the language of wrestling. I want you to listen for the language of struggle. Luther says this, speaking of that fateful night in the tower of the monastery in Wittenberg. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. He's speaking of Romans 1.17. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. You hear that? He's knocking on the door, and it's not opening. So what does he do? Yet I clung to Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Some versions render that statement, I beat importunately, unceasingly, I beat on Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Then I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. I beat, importunately, unceasingly, upon Paul, desiring most ardently to know what he meant. Do you not hear in those words the cry of Jacob, I won't let go until you bless me? Luther struggled, he strived, he wrestled day and night because he knew there was nowhere else to turn. There was no other hope outside of Christ, and Christ was not to be found but in the gospel. Therefore, if he was to find Christ, he must understand this gospel that Paul was trying to teach him. Jesus is the door of the kingdom, and Luther knew if he was to enter the kingdom, he had to go through him. And one night, Luther's desperate, tenacious, persevering faith broke through the gates, and he entered into paradise itself. That's my own testimony as well. I spent the better part of two years in my early to mid-twenties, the first two years in seminary, in fact, in the throes of agony over the state of my soul. I feared more than anything that I was a counterfeit, that I was a fake, that I was a fraud, that I was not in a state of grace. And so I cried out to Christ for help and deliverance and assurance and peace, and for two years I received nothing. No answer, no peace, no assurance, no confidence, no respite, no relief. So what did I do? 
kept wrestling. Why? Because where else could I turn? I read from the lips of Peter in John 6, 68, when asked, are you guys going to desert me as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And I said that over and over and over again to Jesus. Lord, to whom else shall I turn? And so I determined that I was going to cling to him with everything I had. I had this image in my mind that on the day of judgment, if I stood before God and he pronounced me guilty and sentenced me to hell, they were going to have to pull me from Christ's feet. I banged on the door of heaven until my knuckles were bruised and bloodied, and I said to him, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he did. And you know how he did it? He did it through the act of wrestling. In all of my striving, something was happening. I was digging deeper and deeper and pressing further and further in to the gospel. Until finally I found the core of it. And there in the core I found peace and assurance and a well-grounded confidence that is not easily shaken these days. That I am among God's elect. That he has justified me by his grace and that I am in Christ. The fruit of this wrestling with God is a desperate, tenacious persevering faith that otherwise would not exist but for the wrestling. You cannot change your own heart. You cannot bring about your own new birth. You cannot open your blind eyes. You cannot unstop your deaf ears. You cannot enlighten your darkened mind. You cannot cause your salvation. The decisive act in your salvation belongs to God and to God alone. But that does not mean that you sit by and passively wait. That is not what Jesus calls you to. He calls you to wrestle because that's what faith does. Faith is not a passive thing that sits back and waits to be zapped. Faith is an active thing that strives, that agonizes, that pounds on the door until it gives way. Faith wrestles, and it does not quit. It forces its way into the kingdom. It clings to Christ until it receives the blessing of his grace. Why? Because we have the promise, Matthew 7, 6 through eight, we have the promise that one day the wrestling match will end. One day the door will open because to everyone who knocks desperately, tenaciously, perseveringly, the door will be opened. And to everyone who asks desperately, tenaciously, perseveringly, he will receive. So do not wait to be blessed. Do not sit passively by. That is not what Jesus calls great faith, and that is not the kind of faith that enters the kingdom. If you want to know that you're among the elect, if you want to know that you are justified in the sight of God, if you want to know that you belong to Christ, if you want to know that you are born again, if you want to have a well-grounded confidence that you are in Christ, you've got to wrestle with God. 
That is the point of Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. That is the point that Jesus is driving home to his disciples. And that is the point that he is trying to make to us today. You've got to wrestle. Because it's in the wrestling that saving faith emerges.